This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get staffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the Tracking Board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to talk about some of our favorite scenes in TV history and what makes them so good. And some of these excerpts come from Deep Space Nine, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Good Place, The Good Wife, Lost, and The Simpsons. Let's get it on. But first up for our paper scraps segment, we had a tweet from one of our listeners, Andy Jang, and we just wanted to address his question. And it was as follows. Hey, Alex and Nick, what's the ideal size of a writing group? Six to eight, more? How often do you meet, check in, etc.? Thank you. You hit the, the nail right on the head. It's about six. I feel like that's a good number because essentially you want to mimic, at least for me, I'd like to mimic the writer's room environment, which doesn't exceed eight or 10 people for a good cohesive group. Yeah. I think once you get more than that, when you get those kind of big, like 12, 15 people groups and you're all sitting around in a circle, even if you're maybe getting a bigger volume of notes and feedback from people, you're getting less time for each of them to talk and to, to respond to questions and interact. So it really just has become kind of chaotic and unorganized after that. That's definitely the law of diminishing returns when you you get a bunch of notes that may be good in theory, but in practice can overwhelm you. And it also depends on the format of your writing group. If it's just a question of writing 10 pages a week and getting that feedback, I'm of the mind that you would rather get feedback from a few people of a close finished script than something as temporary as 10 pages from this single scene. And I would just say in terms of practicality, the larger the writing group is, the more material presumably you may have to read each week and then it becomes kind of unmanageable to really work into your schedule. It depends on, again, how uh, your writer's group functions. Yeah, I also suggest the writing group episode that we did uh, earlier in our run and specifically explaining my own format for my writing group, which is, again, akin to the writer's room format. In other words, every week, one person becomes the de facto showrunner, and for X hours that day, we're going to be working collectively on that person's pilot or script or outline, whatever that is. And I feel that's a better way of giving creative input on someone else's work rather than feedback on something that's evolving and incomplete. Yeah, I know a lot of people tend to run their groups kind of like a, a book club or a poetry reading where you go away with some homework and you come back with your thoughts and you, you say them there or you just read the script out on the night and people react to it on the spot. So those are both valid ways of doing it. It just depends on what you want to get out of it and what works best for you. And now on with the show. All right, let's talk TV shows. And like with our past case studies on TV pilots and TV characters, we wanted to choose more unique examples of interesting TV scenes. So you won't have a scene with Walter White in an RV dressed in his undies and you don't know what happens, aka the opening scene of Breaking Bad. And we also wanted to showcase specific elements of effective scenes on TV. So it won't just be about the dialogue or the writing, but the totality of the scene as presented. 
And the last thing is, for the purposes of this podcast, the scenes we've picked, with maybe one exception, are mostly dialogue-heavy scenes, although, like I said, we won't really be digging into just dialogue with all of them. And since we're talking about specific scenes, we'll also be playing an excerpt from each of the scenes we've selected, but if you want a more visual aid, I'll try to find the actual video clips to put in the show notes at paperteam.co slash 77. And now let's quickly go over the six scenes, three comedies, three dramas that we'll be discussing in this episode. So the first one we're going to be doing is a classic scene from The Simpsons. It's from an episode called 22 Short Films About Springfield, which is season seven, episode 21. And the segment, the scene is called Skinner and the Superintendent. Some people might know it as the steamed hams scene. And essentially, if you're unfamiliar with The Simpsons, it's like the longest running continuous TV show of all time. <laughs> Hopefully like you should be aware of it in the pop culture at this point. It's about a family called The Simpsons. But there are <laughs> these other characters, Brett Principal Skinner, who runs Bart and Lisa's elementary school, and the superintendent, who's basically his boss, who comes and kind of checks up. And Skinner is always making these lame excuses and cover-ups for why his school is so bad. And, and that's kind of the relationship and dynamic between those two people. And so this is kind of a scene where Skinner has invited him over for lunch on a weekend and is trying to, to make it good time of it. One of the scenes that I've selected is from the show Deep Space Nine, Star Trek. I know Nick loves to talk about The Simpsons. I love to talk about Star Trek. And it's from the episode Far Beyond the Stars, episode 13 in the sixth season. And it's a very special episode because that is the one where Cisco has a vision of himself in the 1950s. So it's kind of a pure piece episode. And he sort of portrays this science fiction writer in that era. And it's kind of the final scene in this whole episode where Benny, the character that he portrays, has a nervous breakdown because as a black writer in this environment, he cannot get his story published because, you know, they don't want a black lead in that story. So it's kind of an emotional, a little bit melodramatic scene uh, that we'll be covering. My next one is from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and that's uh, season four, episode 24. It's called Papa's Got a Brand New Excuse. This show, if you're unfamiliar, is about this kid from West Philadelphia born and raised on the playground. No, I'm not getting it. Uh, but basically this kind of like young, very laid back kind of guy has to move in with this kind of stuffy upper class family in Bel Air and, and Los Angeles and integrate with that. In this episode, we're pretty far into the show and we actually get into a little bit of the backstory that Will's dad had left him and his family when he was young. And this is part of the reason he was previously living with his grandma and then he got sent here to live with his aunt and uncle. And so his dad shows up again in his life and they explore the, the consequences of that. Uh, the next dramatic scene, even though this one is also pretty dramatic, uh, is a scene from Lost in the episode The Whole Truth, which is episode 16 in season two. That is the scene where the character that we now know as Ben Linus pretends to be Henry Gale and eats breakfast with John and Locke. And uh, there's more to it, but uh, I'll just leave it at that right now. The last comedy scene is going to be from The Good Place, season two, episode three, called Dance Dance Resolution. We have spoken about Good Place before on this podcast, and this is kind of, spoiler alert, the tipping point after Michael has had to make changes to the neighborhood after they discovered they were actually in the bad place. And uh, this particular sequence is him resetting the neighborhood over and over and over again, trying to get it right because they keep figuring it out. And the final dramatic scene is from The Good Wife in the episode entitled Hitting the Fan. So you can uh, fill in the blank there. It's the fifth episode of the fifth season. If you don't know The Good Wife, essentially the logline is that Alicia, the lead, uh, has been a good wife to her husband, a former state's attorney. And after he's been humiliated by a sex scandal and he's behind bars, she kind of had to uh, provide for her family and return to work as a lawyer uh, in a law firm. And so this is five seasons deep. Long story short, 
her and another lawyer uh, behind the partner's backs is about to create her own law firm and is leaving uh, Lockhart Gardner, which is the workplace that she's been working at for four years, four seasons. And this is the scene that Will, one of those partners and her secret lover and friend, finds out. So it's a very dramatic scene. And uh, I'm hoping that the other scenes we had were also comedic for your purposes, Nick. Yes, very funny. Let's begin with The Simpsons. All right, so a little more context about this thing. As we said, Skinner invites Superintendent Chalmers over for lunch at his house, but it pretty quickly descends into a giant farce where he is trying to cover up for all of the little mistakes he's made and the things that are going wrong with the lunch while making sure that Chalmers doesn't know any of it and, and thinks he's just there and having a good time to show that he is a functional human being, which he's clearly not. Interestingly, this is 100% self-contained because this was actually designed as a short in amongst a bunch of other shorts in this special episode of The Simpsons. So this is not even a scene in the context of a broader episode where we're exploring an A story or B story with these people. It's literally just this scene and that's it. Well, Seymour, I made it, despite your directions. Ah, Superintendent Chalmers, welcome. I hope you're prepared for an unforgettable luncheon. Yeah. Oh, ye gods! My roast is ruined! But what if... I were to purchase fast food and disguise it as my own cooking. <laughs> Delightfully devilish, Seymour. Superintendent, I was just, uh, just stretching my calves on the windowsill. Isometric exercise. Care to join me? Why is there smoke coming out of your oven, Seymour? Uh, oh, that isn't smoke. It's steam. Steamed from the steamed clams we're having. Mmm, steamed clams. Ooh. Superintendent, I hope you're ready for mouth-watering hamburgers. I thought we were having steamed clams. No, no, I said steamed hams. That's what I call hamburgers. You call hamburgers steamed hams? Yes, it's a regional dialect. Uh-huh. Uh, what region? Uh, upstate New York. Really? Well, I'm from Utica, and I've never heard anyone use the phrase steamed hams. Oh, not in Utica. No, it's an Albany expression. I see. You know, these hamburgers are quite similar to the ones they have at Krusty Burger. Oh, no. Patented Skinner Burgers. Old family recipe. For steamed hams. Yes. Yes, and you call them steamed hams despite the fact they are obviously grilled. You know, the one thing I should... Excuse me for one second. Of course. Oh, well, that was wonderful. Good time was had by all. I'm pooped. Yes, I should be. Good Lord, what is happening in there? Aurora Borealis? Uh, Aurora Borealis. At this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. May I see it? No. Seymour, the house is on fire! No, Mother, it's just the northern lights. Well, Seymour, you are an odd fellow, but I must say, you steam a good ham. You steam a good ham, Nick. <laughs> I 
Thank you. It's kind of funny, like listening to that, I, I wasn't watching the video as it was going on and like you could still get the full context of everything that was happening just from that and the sound effects. Hopefully we don't get sued for playing a three-minute long clip from The Simpsons. I hope not. They got a lot of money, so uh, let's be careful. Obviously, this is a hilarious scene and although it draws on maybe some knowledge of who Skinner and Chalmers are, it's pretty clear in the scene through those power dynamics and the theme song literally spells it out for you. Skinner with his crazy explanations, superintendent's going to need his medication. When he hears Skinner's lame exaggerations they'll be traveling town tonight like that's the whole setup that you need uh, if you are unfamiliar with them and it is pretty reflective of what they're like usually in the show when superintendent comes to check out the school so here are the things about this scene that i really love and i think work well a big one is the dialogue now skinner has all of these excuses and cover-ups that continue to just heighten and heighten and get more and more ridiculous as it goes first he's trying to disguise fast food as his home cooking and then cover up that he actually said uh, he's like no i said steamed hams instead of steamed clams and then the final straw is that there's a fire in his kitchen and he literally tells him that it's aurora borealis <laughs> you know it doesn't literally get, it doesn't literally. get more ridiculous than that and as i said we do get this sense of a character relationship from chalmers you know passive aggressiveness towards him even the first line well seymour and i made it despite your directions and skinner's kind of subservience to him that that power dynamic and status is revealed through the way that they interact with each other even just in the dialogue and chalmers dialogue is interesting because it walks a fine line of skepticism you know just enough not to seem like he's completely caught on or call Skinner out on these shenanigans. It allows us to suspend our disbelief just long enough, <laughs> especially the line, may I see it at the end is a, is a brilliant kind of like reversal on this. In jokes, you kind of have these different things you can do with them. You can either confirm it, you can subvert it, or you can reverse it. So uh, that's just a really brilliant decision to make there. So the, the style of humor in this scene is what you would call a classic farce. And now a farce uh, comes from like stage plays. So it's described as a light humorous play in which the plot depends upon a skillfully exploited situation rather than upon the development of character, which is true. These characters don't really develop along the whole way. We're hitting the same notes and the same relationship between them. There's no real shift in, in the character dynamics at all, but it is just about the situation that's unfolding in front of us. So it's pretty, it's plot heavy. And, and it's always this completely ridiculous, improbable situation where some sort of facade must be kept up despite the mounting obstacles to the point of absurdity. Think of great shows like Faulty Towers or the classic Monty Python sketches, like the one with the dead parrot where they're trying to tell people he's not dead, he's just uh, sleeping. Oh wait, he's uh, he's pining for the fjords. You know, <laughs> these completely ridiculous explanations. People keep just buying it enough to, to continue the scene. And then again, that peak escalation of the farce is captured and called out perfectly by that line where he literally describes to the audience all the things that would have had to go right for this to be true. Aurora Borealis. At this time, of year at this time of day in this part of the country localized entirely within your kitchen he's like, yes like it's just so so over the top that to the point of absurdity that it's hilarious and yet he wants to see it that's yeah the reversal exactly exactly so that's just a perfectly executed comedic scene in any sense of the words but what can writers actually learn from this scene how to steam a good ham Ooh. But, uh, <laughs> do you have the recipe is that your specialty it's, it's an it's an old family recipe uh <laughs> but i would say the things that writers can learn from this firstly is brevity now uh, the writer of this segment bill oakley who later became one of the showrunners of the simpsons actually a little while back a couple of weeks back posted an earlier draft of the original script of this before it was punched up through the room and, and finalized on his twitter account and so you can actually go and take a look at that a lot of it was the same but also many of the jokes had more kind of like 
needless beats or dead air in between them. And obviously they kind of went through and trimmed all of that out. So the finished version is super tight. I don't think there's really a single line that's wasted or not used to heighten the situation or reveal or confirm character relationship dynamics or escalate the kind of the jokes. So it's really just like a masterclass in writing a tight, funny scene that doesn't waste a word. The other thing that's important to learn from this is understanding the game, which you've now all lost by me saying that. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for making me think of the game. Calling back the old school memes. But yeah, so the game of a scene is very important in comedy. Game is a term that's often used in improv, sketch, even writing satire articles. It's basically the conceit or the focus of the joke. And so the game of this is more or less that Skinner is trying to cover up things with lame excuses. And then you keep heightening and heightening that game. And the important thing about that is they're not diluting it with asides to other things or other storylines. They're focused entirely on what's going to be the best kind of escalation and progression of this game. So knowing what your game is in a scene and what basically boils down to the same story elements of having a goal and obstacles and and a want and all that kind of thing. It's a bit like yes ending. Yeah, essentially. So I think those two things you can really take away from a classic scene like that. Alex is going to walk us through a scene from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I haven't seen any of the other eight Deep Spaces, but I hear this one is pretty good. Yeah, in fact, this particular episode aired 20 years ago, almost to the day, February 11th, 1998. Can you believe that 98 was 20 years ago, Nick? Oh my God. That's insane. We're getting so old. Uh, But uh, if you're not familiar with Deep Space Nine, I'm really not going to go into too much detail about the story of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine because for the purposes of this episode, the backstory doesn't really matter a ton. However, I'm going to explain this particular episode. We're transported back in the 1950s in New York as the lead, Benjamin Sisko, who's the Starfleet captain in the show, has a vision of himself as Benny Russell, this staff writer in a sci-fi magazine. And as the vision begins, each of the writers in that magazine take a new assignment for the next issue and a drawing catches Benny's eye which we recognize as a drawing of the Deep Space Nine station and over the episode Benny starts to write his short story becoming fascinated with the world he's inventing a world where Benjamin Sisko is a captain of a space station. Is this one of those episodes that they tend to do where they still use all the same actors who play the crew, but they put them into different situations on Earth? It's exactly that. In fact, that's one of the reasons why this episode is so famous is because it's one of the only times that all the regular characters are not in makeup or prosthetics. So you do play with this notion of, oh, this is Quark, but he doesn't look like Quark, and yet he still has the same quirks. See what I did there? <laughs> all right, uh, back to the story. So everyone in the magazine often reads Benny's story, which is entitled Deep Space Nine, and everyone loves it. However, the editor of the magazine says he cannot print a story with a black captain, so the publisher and distributors won't even accept that idea. He asks Benny to switch the protagonist to a white guy. Benny refuses, and later in the episode, Benny returns with six more Ben Sisko stories, which obviously pisses off the editor. And the other writers, however, do back Benny up, And the editor relents and will try to publish the story if Benny makes one key change. That the story actually ends up being about a shoeshine boy or a convict dreaming of a better future instead of it being the reality. And Benny accepts the change. And the scene I've selected from that episode takes place a few weeks later as Benny returns to the office on the day that his Deep Space Nine issue is back from the printer. Douglas, magazine... There isn't any magazine. Not this month, anyway. Mr. Stone had the entire run pulped. He can't do that. Oh, he can. And he did. He believes, quote, this issue did not live up to our usual high standards, unquote. Well, what's that supposed to mean? It means he didn't like it. 
which means the public will simply have to get along without any incredible tales this month. What exactly is it that he did not like? The, the, the artwork, the, uh, the layout? Uh, what high standards is he talking about? Oh, I, it's about my story, isn't it? That's what this is all about. He didn't want to publish my story. And we all know why. Because my hero is a colored man. Hey, this magazine belongs to Mr. Stone. If he doesn't want to publish this month, we don't publish this month. End of story. That doesn't make it right, and you know it. Don't tell me what I know. Besides, it's not about what's right. It's about what is. And I'm afraid I've got some more bad news for you, Benny. Mr. Stone has decided that your services are no longer required here. What? You're firing me? I have no choice, Benny. It's his decision. Well, you can't fire me. I quit. To hell with you! And to hell with Stone! Try to stay calm, Benny. Oh, I'm tired of being calm. Calm never got me a damn thing. I'm warning you, Benny, if, if you don't stop this, I'm going to call the police. You go ahead, call them! Call anybody you want. They can't do anything to me. Not anymore, and nor can any of you. My human being, damn it. You can deny me all you want, but you cannot deny Ben Sisko exists. That future, that space station, all those people, they exist in here. In my mind, I created it. And every one of you know it. You read it. It's here. You, you, you hear what I'm telling you? You can pop a story, but you cannot destroy an idea. Don't you understand? That's ancient knowledge. You cannot destroy an idea. That future, I created it, and it's real. Don't you understand? It is real. I created it, and it's real. It's real. Oh, God. Wow. It's real. <laughs> Before we talk about this specific scene, I kind of had to take a step back and talk not just about Deep Space Nine, but the importance of the character of Sisko in TV history. And Benjamin Sisko, as played by Avery Brooks, is the first African-American Starfleet captain and lead of the franchise, which is no small feat for a major TV show made in 1993. But much like with David Palmer in 24, which was made almost a decade later, the fact that the lead of the show is African-American is completely irrelevant to the story. In fact, up until this specific episode of Deep Space Nine, it's never brought up in any capacity, as it should be. And so to even bring up that as a thematic element, the show transports our lead into that of a science fiction writer trying to make it in 1953. Now, obviously, neither Nick or I can speak to those struggles, but that is actually one of the many reasons why Far Beyond the Stars and Deep Space Nine succeeds as science fiction to me, because this isn't just a show about entertainment for entertainment's sake, but it is an allegory for our time and the human condition, which brings me to another reason why I really appreciate this episode, and that is because it is kind of a bit of a meta sci-fi episode. It isn't just a commentary about the 1950s, but also about the medium today. Cisco's ethnicity doesn't really matter within the story of Deep Space Nine, 
but it is an important step forward to have a non-white protagonist, and this is reflected within the episode itself. Now, of course, Benny wasn't going to be able to publish his story in the 1950s, but the episode also doesn't celebrate the fact that such a story can happen in 1998, or in fact, 2018. Look around at the world we live in today. Would Benny have an easy life as a struggling sci-fi writer today? Prejudices destroyed lives in the 1950s as well as 98. And still today, we don't live in a post-racial America. And I feel like that episode shines a light on that aspect in a meta way. Regarding the scene itself, I love that moment specifically because it is a microcosm of the themes of the episode itself. It's summarizing the whole operational theory of this entire episode. I kind of compare it to the I'm mad as hell and I can't take this anymore scene from the movie Network, which is another piece of fiction that I love. And it kind of goes full in to service the character's total mental breakdown. He's had enough and he just snapped, which for some people may be seen as too melodramatic. Yeah, it was interesting for me watching this because I only watched the scene itself and not the episode around it, so I didn't have the full context for it. And in a way, it did feel a little over the top, like some of the dialogue or some of the acting choices were really kind of pushed to that degree that like, it made me wonder, did the rest of the story leading up to this justify that level of pathos? Or was it just that this scene in particular happened to be that melodramatic or require that? I'm not too sure. But there was something to me that was like, oh, they could have dialed that back a little bit and it still would have been fine. There's definitely a criticism for that specific scene. And there's a couple of things in there. Uh, one, I definitely agree that this is a melodramatic dramatic nature to the story, but in my mind, it does fit the narrative and specifically this character and this scene, uh, because this is a man that's been pushed to the breaking point up to that moment in the episode and in the story. But it is also a heightened reality. You got to remember that this is a vision. If you're watching this episode, uh, most people don't realize that, okay, it's not literally that. It's meant as an allegory. It's a, it's almost a theatrical moment. As a side note, Avery Brooks comes from theater. So I think that informed the decision. But also you should know that this episode was directed by Avery Brooks himself. Mm. And to my knowledge, this is the only Star Trek episode where a cast member both directed an episode and also starred as the lead of that episode. So it really wouldn't surprise me if that was kind of a passion project for Brooks at the time. That's interesting. It actually makes a lot of sense that he comes from theater because I think that that level of emotionality and expression would be perfectly fine on the stage. It just feels strange to people watching it on TV because it's usually a lot more muted and subtle because you're you know close to the camera and it's a different way of acting. And I feel like Avery Brooks kind of went through the whole gamut through Deep Space Nine. There are definitely scenes and episodes in the run of the show where he goes the if this is an 11 he dials it back down to a zero or a one and that's a direct contrast and i'd rather see him put more emotions into a scene like a scene from a star trek episode than not because i feel like most star trek episodes if you look even at tng the emotion is dialed back mm-hmm. a lot more compared to shows that were made at the same time in terms of the racism element of the episode and the scene there's been a lot of criticism about how it's a little bit too overt or too on the nose and I did want to read this one comment I found that I will link in the show note about this issue. And it says, quote, I think some people are missing some of the finer details of the episode. The episode does make the obvious statement that racism is bad, but it also examines racism in the kind of detail that you don't find on television. Think about it. Benny Russell basically writes the story of Deep Space Nine, but Deep Space Nine never made a big deal about the fact that Cisco is black. If you just read the Deep Space Nine scripts and ignore the parts that describe Cisco's appearance, 
you won't even know what Cisco's ethnicity is since it is never brought up except in this episode. The writers could have easily made Cisco Asian or Hispanic or Caucasian or a woman, and it would not make that much of a difference on Deep Space Nine's story, just like how they could have made Picard Italian or Portuguese instead of French, and it would not have made much of an effect on TNG. And the fact that Benny Russell was so insistent on making Cisco black, even though it would have no impact on the story, is an excellent illustration of the mechanism of racism. Racism isn't just about how one group benefits from the suffering of another group. It's not just about the physical oppression of a group of people. It's about the suppression of ideas. That is the true evil of racism that this episode is trying to show us. It ties everything a person does, everything a person is, to their race, so that you can completely dismiss that person's feelings, thoughts, and ideas based on something as superficial as their skin color. Yeah, that's a really great comment there, and I think that's something a lot of people don't realize even when looking at you know, the casting of TV shows today, people are like, oh, why does this character need to be Asian or black? Or why do we need this representation on the screen? The characters itself doesn't warrant it. It's not about what their ethnicity is. And it is just a, the sheer fact of seeing people in those positions will not normalize, I guess is the right word, but uh, it just makes young people looking up and watching those people like I can do that too. Like, it wasn't the classic story of Whoopi Goldberg watching Uhara on TV yep. made her want to get into acting and see, I can exactly. do that too. Like I've finally seen an African-American person on screen who is an actor and who's doing this like i can be that too and cisco i would argue is even more of a powerful representation because this is not only an african-american lead but a lead where the color of her skin does not matter and is one of the most compelling characters in the entire saga and that's what I love about Deep Space Nine, because Deep Space Nine doesn't just tackle racism, but also sexism. I mean, one of the other leads of the show is a woman, and she's clearly this confident, powerful female character that is in direct opposite to maybe the sex bots that you had in the original series, if you <laughs> compare that. So I find that very interesting. And what do you think that writers can take away from this scene in their own work? Well, one of the things is you should not be afraid to lean into the emotions of the characters, especially if it is warranted narratively or even thematically. You can pull off great moments of television. And even if you're not a fan of the performance of this episode, you cannot deny the power of the script and the story and the themes it was trying to convey. That is what great science fiction is about. So I really recommend that everyone watch this episode, if not for the world, but really for how different it is from any other Star Trek episode of Deep Space Nine. Even if if you're not into D Space Nine, it's kind of a self-contained narrative, so you can totally dig in and enjoy the show. All right, let's talk about another powerful African-American character on television through the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So this episode, as we mentioned earlier, is called Papa's Got a Brand New Excuse, season four, episode 24. And this is the one where Will's dad shows up back in his life, then kind of leaves again just as quickly. And it is a very memorable episode that a lot of people still kind of have stuck in their heads and will think of when they think of Fresh Prince. So here's a little bit of the backstory as to what is going on here. And interestingly to note, this is not something that has come up in the series outside of the basic setup of Will was living with his grandma and had to go live with his aunt and uncle. There was always the notion that Will's father had left him when he was young, but this is the very first time Will's father ever shows up in the show. So this isn't an ongoing character arc. This is entirely episodic and contained within this one episode, started and finished. But essentially, this episode, Will is reunited with his father, Lou, after 14 years. Will hasn't seen him since he abandoned him and his family. And his aunt and uncle, Vivian and Philip, really can't forgive Lou for what he did. 
But Lou tells Will the real reason he abandoned him was because he was scared. So Will forgives him and wants to give him another chance. But his Uncle Phil isn't happy about this, and Will and Philip get into an argument. But then Will packs to go on the trip with his father for the summer, and that's where we pick up this scene. Will! (laughs) I'm glad you're here. Um, Some business came up I gotta handle. So we're gonna have to put our trip on hold. You understand? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Cool. Just for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little longer. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. Look, I'll, I'll call you next week and we'll iron out the details. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, yeah. It was great seeing you, son. You too. Lou. Yeah, yeah um... I'm sorry, Will. <laughs> you know what? Actually, this works out better for me. You know, the Slimmies of Summer come to class wearing next to nothing. You know what I'm Will, saying? Will, it's all right to be angry. Hey, why should I be mad? I'm saying at least he said goodbye this time. I just wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this stupid present. I'm sorry. I, you know, if there was something that I hey, could Hey, you know do. what? You ain't got to do no, nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm going to be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good at it too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? Got through my first day without him, right? Mm-hmm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Die with him! I ain't need him then and I don't need him now. Will. Will. Nah, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey. And I'm going to have me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that. Because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? What a laugh out loud comedic moment from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> from a multi-cam sitcom. Yeah, so obviously the scene is incredibly moving. What you don't get there from the audio is that the present that Will brought his father was a statue of a father and a son kind of embracing, and he had bought that for his dad, and they kind of pan down from the hug that Will's giving his uncle onto that statue and just kind of like fade out. So incredibly powerful scene. And you know, tonally, it, it is such a departure from the kind of like lightheartedness of this sitcom. It's it's widely regarded as one of the most moving moments on a you know a TV sitcom. It's it's really in the tradition of like a Norman Lear multicam sitcom. Even if you look at the current reboot of One Day at a Time on Netflix, there are some really genuinely moving moments amidst the comedy. It does feel like a stage play where it can flip from this comedy and silliness to true drama and pathos on a dime, and, and it's even more effective for that fact. Some fun trivia at the end of this episode. If you listen closely, you could actually hear a woman crying as well. That was Karen Parsons, who played Hillary backstage involuntarily crying during the scene. And the guy who played Lou, Will's dad, Ben Viren, said that he also broke into tears after walking off stage after leaving Will. And maybe that was because this ending was actually improvised. According to Will Smith, his character was just meant to shrug off Lou leaving him yet again. But then he partly improvised that final scene and broke down in tears. You know, while it wasn't inspired by Will Smith's own parents, because he had a, a good relationship with them, he had a lot of friends who never knew their fathers. And his emotions in that final scene, he said, came from thinking of all his friends who 
never had a father in their own lives. You can almost hear a little bit of the ad-libbing when he messes up a line. Yeah, there's a moment there where he kind of like does it as a retaking and sees kind of like, I'm going to try something. And it was incredible. Like, I think that it's just, we'll get into that in a second. But another thing to comment on this is, like we said before, that serialization versus the episodic nature. It's a great example of doing a story that utilizes a character's backstory and an audience's pre-existing understanding of human relationships and their emotional meaning, for example, a father-son relationship, without having to set them up within the show as some kind of serialized relationship that unfolds over a season. Another show may have made this an ongoing storyline, but I think it speaks to the strength of the writing that they can introduce and uh, exit such an important relationship and tell a fully contained story within one half-hour episode. It's emotionally resonant and devastating because it's so universally relatable on an emotional level. You know, even if someone does have great parents, they can empathize with what it would be like for them to be in Will's situation. It's also an interesting thought that I don't want to step on what you just said, but I was talking to someone last night about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and that person has seen most of the, the show's run and did not remember the scene, even though it is arguably the most iconic scene from the entire show. And there's something to say about how, even though you've seen most of the show and you remember the show, you don't remember the one scene that's the most cathartic, emotional scene of the entire show. I mean, there is a little bit of an issue there on the uh, character development perspective, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it that you could miss it so easily because it is contained just to that one episode. But I think that was just the nature of how sitcom was written at the time. So, but, you know. These days, I think that people are much more willing to explore the serialized elements of sitcom. On a very special episode of Fresh Prince, what can writers learn? Well, I think a big one is emotional truth. It's so important, even in comedy. Having something that people can empathize with and relate to, a universal truth to the story, makes it so much more resonant, whether it is for the purpose of laughter or for pathos. So that's one to kind of really take away from that. And the other thing I think is that characters don't always have to win at the end. You know, let them have their weaknesses, their flaws, and their, and their vulnerability. Will Smith's choice to cry and say, how come he don't want me, man, makes it an infinitely more interesting and complex moment and character choice than just shrugging it off with a smile and, oh, I didn't need him anyway, fade out to some happy music, you know? Yeah, that's one thing I did want to point out also about the D-Space Nine episode that I forgot to say is exactly what you mentioned about not having the happy ending necessarily for an episode, even if it's a comedy in your example. Like, mm -hmm. you can lean into that moment of maybe this is actually a negative ending, but closer to reality, closer to how people actually feel and live their lives. Exactly. Yeah. Tragedy and dramatic irony is just as powerful as a happy, self-resolved, all the loose ends are tied up kind of ending. All right. So for this one, I think we're about to get lost. Onto something completely different from The Fresh Prince and Deep Space Nine. Uh, this scene from Lost comes from the second season episode, The Whole Truth. And to set things up from the story's perspective, the castaways, Jack, Logg, and so forth, have been terrorized on this island by a mysterious group of people called the Others. And they end up capturing this man called Henry Gale. They think he's one of these Others, but he's maintaining his story. Even after torture and being held prisoner for days, he tells them who he is. I'm Henry Gale of Walnut Ridge Road and a man who was traveling around the globe with his wife on a hot air balloon with a giant smiley face on it and then they crashed on the island and his wife died and he buried her by that hot air balloon 
And he still maintains that story despite all the physical and mental abuse. So clearly he must be telling the truth. But the castaways still do not believe him. And as a last ditch effort, Henry gives Anna Lucia, Michelle Rodriguez's character, the coordinates to his hot hair balloon and where his wife is buried. All of that unbeknownst to Jack and Locke. And this is now the final scene of The Whole Truth. What's the computer for? Nothing. Cereal? Wow, where'd you guys get cereal? I was down here all along. Pantry's full of food. How old is it? You guys don't know much, huh? I mean, I'd be asking all kinds of questions about all this stuff down here. You guys don't even seem that curious. Do you want the cereal or don't you? my reward for good behavior, huh? I guess I earned myself some goodwill for finally drawing that map for Anna. What map? To my balloon. Did you? No. Wow, you guys have some real trust issues, don't you? Guess it makes sense she didn't tell you. I mean, with the two of you fighting all the time. If I was one of them, these people that you seem to think are your enemies, what would I do? Well, there'd be no balloon. So I'd draw a map to a real secluded place, like a cave or some underbrush. A good place for a trap. An ambush. When your friends got there, a bunch of my people would be waiting for them. And then they'd use them to trade for me. I guess it's a good thing I'm not one of them, huh? You guys got any milk? What a great campaign for gut milk, isn't it? <laughs> well, spoiler alert, Henry Gale is actually one of the others. And in fact, he's the de facto leader of the others, Benjamin Linus. And this whole scene is one of the most iconic monologues of the entire show, which is no small feat considering that this is a show which has had its fair share of iconic monologues. Now, here's a fun fact. Michael Emerson, who plays Henry Gale and Ben Linus, was originally contracted to appear in just three episodes, which was then extended to another five episodes. And then this milk scene happened, and that was the moment where their producers knew that he was, quote, a keeper. So from the third season on, Michael Emerson was upped to series regular. But... Really, if you look at the scene, it's a masterclass of acting. The subtlety of the performance is pretty much the diametrical opposite of the Avery Brooks performance from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, it's it's really well done. Like the way that he just kind of like meters that out. And yeah, I was very impressed with that. I feel like the this whole dynamic and, and dialogue in the scene is also great beyond just the performance. First, you have Ben continuing to poke and prod for some information. He asks about the serial, which they don't know much about, which in turn reveals that the castaways don't know much or care about the hatch, the place they're in right now. He also asks about the computer, which according to Jack is for nothing, while seeing two episodes, whether or not that is true. And then Ben slightly reveals that Anna Lucia set off to find the balloon 
behind Jack and Locke's backs. Sounds like there are cracks in those relationships. And then the coup de grace is the character slowly playing on those fears, pointing out that if he were one of these others, he would have used the opportunity to lead their friends to a trap. But guess it's a good thing he's not one of them. It reminds me of like a psychopath or someone like doing that like gaslighting thing where they're like telling you one thing and then like reassuring you that's not the case. And it's just kind of like it really belies some kind of subtle psychopathy or sociopathy on behalf of this guy. Yeah, exactly. And I remember kind of watching this episode when it aired and still not knowing whether or not he was one of the others. And that's the thing that puts kind of this entire scene up there for me is that despite this crazy exchange where you believe, okay, clearly this guy is a psychopath, he's an other, but you're still not sure whether or not he's telling the truth. And that's a great testament to Michael Emerson's performance. And in fact, the next episode, you do see that he was telling the truth to some extent. The balloon was true. Someone was buried by the balloon. And then Saeed still did not believe Henry Gale's story, so he dug the grave and found the body of a man, Henry Gale. So clearly there's some lie mixed in with some truth, uh, which I really appreciated in that moment. And I also have to point out the casual and unnerving nature uh, with which Michael Emerson eats the cereal, which is reminiscent of uh, the way Alison Williams eats her cereal in Get Out. You think he's uh, practiced that in his trailer? Like, are we doing cereal rehearsals? I'm going to practice how I crunch it just, just the right way. Yeah, I think Allison and him are in a serial group. I think that's how it works. <laughs> There's a podcast about that, right? Serial? Well, I thought this was the dramatic section of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what can writers learn from this aside from what kinds of cereal they should eat? <laughs> it's all about dialogue, really, this scene. Dialogue can reveal not just character, but character cracks. Use your words to prod other people in your story, not just a passive bouncing board or empty words that are there to showcase your flourishes. Have intent and meaning behind those. Yeah, that's a great point. Like I think that often people forget that characters are trying to find out information from other characters. It's not just about what the audience needs to find out from a character saying something to them. Yeah, and even on that point, when you're writing a monologue, you can still use that interplay with other characters. Get reactions from people in that scene or push the story in an interesting new direction. It doesn't just have to be some exposition or info dump. It can also be the inciting incident for another story. In this case, the fact that Henry Gale revealed the information about Andalusia to Jack and Law created the conflict for the next episode while still maintaining the mystery about who he truly was. All right, after purgatory, let's go to the real good place. <laughs> yes, sure, the real good place. So the good place, if you're unfamiliar, is a show where these people wake up in what appears to be heaven. They're told that they, they made it, they did a good job, and they've been paired with their soulmates and put in the perfect places that they, they're going to live for eternity, only for us to slowly realize that these people were never meant to be there. And they're kind of like in their own little personal hell, which turns out to be completely true because they're actually in hell and this is all something designed to torture them. Now, the architect who has designed this neighborhood, who they thought was some kind of heavenly angel, is really a demon torturing them, Michael. But we get to this point where the people discover it's the bad place, which ruins his whole plan. And so now he has to reconstruct it so that they don't find out. But he finds it's a lot harder than he thought it was and has to do it over and over and over again, trying to get it right so that they don't figure it out. Because that's part of the whole idea is that they think they're in the good place the whole time. They torture each other. So here's the clip. No, 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 Michael, please, 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 please don't kill me. I have so much to live for. I'm sorry, Janet. Gotta reboot you every time I start over. Oh, I know. I'm not actually upset. It's just the automatic fail-safe mechanism that kicks in every time you approach the plunger. Go ahead. Oh. Michael, you monster! 
Attempt 32. Attempt 57. Attempt 99. Attempt 108. I've analyzed some recent data. Eleanor always seems to realize that they're in the bad place just at the moment Excuse that- me. Sorry, the door was open, so I just came in. Did you just say I'm in the bad place? Attempt 109. I've closed and locked the door. Yep. And we're ready to go. This is your soulmate, Greg. This is your soulmate, Glenn. This is your soulmate, Tahani. This is your soulmate, Lurf. This is your soulmate, the Golden Retriever. Hang on. Wait a minute. You know what? Holy smokes. This is the bad place. 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 The pig's getting angry. This is the bad place. Beef, 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 beef. Oh, oh, this is the bad place. Shh. Michael, Michael, if I'm gone, who will take care of my birds? Michael, no, 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 I, I, I'm pregnant. And it's your baby. I have tickets to Hamilton next week, and there's a rumor that Duffy Diggs is coming back. Janet, we've been through this hundreds of times. I mean, can you just chill out? Is that possible, Janet? Can you just chill out a little? Nope. It's gonna be the same every time. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, no, no! No, Michael! Please, please calm down. Calm down. All right, okay. Calm down, calm down. I mean, why even bother at this point? I'm obviously never gonna get it right. I'm Eleanor. I'm so smart. I'm actually in the bad place. Sean still thinks I'm on version two. I just keep lying to him. It's really bad, but I... I mean, I have to keep trying. I'm in too deep. And I'm really fat right now. I'm stress eating and I'm gaining weight in my thighs. I mean, look at that. Ugh. So sorry, uh, who are you? And where am I? It doesn't matter. This one doesn't even count. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Attempt 108. <laughs> I've locked the door. <laughs> yeah, so I think part of what makes this so great, and I think you do lose a lot out of not seeing the visuals in this if you haven't seen the episode, but there's a really great sense of pacing to it and the editing that's being used. It is a montage sequence or quick cuts or series of shots or whatever you want to call it. We've kind of mentioned this before in one of our previous episodes, but what happens in this one montage could have easily been an entire season of the show or half a season uh, worth of story as Michael keeps trying to get it right keeps getting caught out by Eleanor and the rest of them, uh, you know, building up to some climax where now, oh no, things will actually have to change for good. Instead, they burn through this story in what, like two or three minutes? Um, you know, it's a pretty bold decision by Mike Sher, but one I think that paid off by surprising the audience and then taking the story to places that we wouldn't have expected. There's a lot to be said for not taking the easy route or the first thing that comes to mind. And I think that is something to keep in mind when you're writing. Yeah, and I think that's why The Good Place has already been considered one of the best comedies on TV and that's specifically because they subvert expectations. They lean into those decisions that you feel are going to be, oh, it's going to be a season finale or it's going to take whatever, 10 episodes to get to that point. And nope, it's going to be one minute of screen time. Exactly. They're doing some really incredible things, especially for broadcast comedy on, on network TV. Like this level of particularly serialization is not something that we, we tend to see. So it's a great show. Another one of the things that makes this scene really great is this juxtaposition. So seeing what is the situation of this sitcom that was established 
established in season one being fundamentally altered. You know, they spent an entire season in that situation and now we're changing it up in these rapid cuts and imagining all these possibilities of, say, Eleanor's soulmate being Tahani instead of Chidi or, you know, a golden retriever. You know, it packs a lot of punch in those quick shots because there's so much tied up in that and what it could entail. Uh, it reminds me of when The Simpsons made fun of themselves with that montage to the tune of We Didn't Start the Fire. Uh, it was called They'll Never Stop the Simpsons. And they're like, have no fear. We've got stories for years. Marge becomes a <laughs> robot. How about a crazy wedding? Like all that stuff. <laughs> it's kind of like they, they're sending themselves up. Yeah. Just going back on the, the story level, a lot of those ideas and that pacing comes from Lost in many ways. Mike Schur went to Damon Lindelof when he created the show, pitching him this idea of, I'm going to be spending an entire season where it's revealed that it's actually the bad place. Can this be sustainable? And Damon Lindelof was, sure, good luck. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, there's many lost references in that very sequence that we just quoted. Michael talks about Attempt 108, which is a direct reference to the lost computer and hatch that we just saw only two minutes, well, 15 minutes ago at this point. Yeah, I never thought of episode. that. They're pressing the button all the time, just like yep. you're pressing the button and lost. There you go. So interesting. Another thing that works really well in this whole sequence or scene is that we get a lot of mileage in terms of character out of Michael's descent into madness as he resets the neighborhood hundreds of times. We see him growing a beard or like kind of stubble, undoing his tie and jacket uh, as he's heard getting fat from stress eating. Meanwhile, the characters of Eleanor and all the others stay exactly the same. It's kind of funny. I was just thinking about it. It's almost as if it's a meta commentary on the hard reset style of traditional sitcoms where the characters start with a blank slate every episode unaffected by what happened on the episodes before. This is kind of like taking a lead and running with it, but perhaps Mike Schur imagines Michael, same name, uh, an architect to be a metaphor for a showrunner trying to design his own perfect show with the right amount of conflict and character dynamics, trying to make it run for a long time, 100 plus episodes. Whoa. Mind blown. <laughs> you heard it here first. Speaking of you heard it here first, what can we hear about what writers can learn about this sequence? <laughs> I think in terms of structure, it's important to realize that you're not beholden to the constraints of a linear scene in real time with a beginning and a middle and an end and then going into a scene that happens right after that. You know, you can compress time, you can jump ahead, you can jump back, you can tell things out of order. Playing with the structure of your story can lead to much more interesting choices and opportunities. Who's to say you can't jump ahead a year after a big scene and see how the world world and the characters have changed in your story. That's your call to make. And, you know, if you're interested in that, you should check out PT70, the episode that we did about nonlinear storytelling for more information on those techniques. Another thing, as Alex mentioned earlier, is expectations. Now, the audience is always going to expect something to happen. They're trying to second guess the story at every turn, but you don't have to give that to them. Use it to your advantage and mislead, subvert, or reverse their expectations completely to make a more memorable story. <laughs> We talked about The Good Place, but what about The Good Wife? Wow. Let's talk about a good episode from The Good Wife called Hitting the Fan. And as mentioned before, for several episodes, Alicia, the lead character, and Carrie Agos have been planning to leave the Lockhart Gardner firm and start their own business. And in the prior episode, Diane Lockhart learns of this. And the opening scene of this very episode, Hitting the Fan, Diane reveals the information to Will. And then we cut to this scene. You're leaving? No, I just got here. I... What? You and Carrie are leaving? Well. No. It's an easy answer. Falls into the yes or no category. 
You and Carrie are leaving and you're taking some clients with you? Yes. And you decided this three weeks ago? Yes. I'm sorry. Of course. That helps. It's time I try something new. I took you in. No one wanted you. I hired you. I pushed for you. Will, this is a business decision. You were poisoned. This firm got you back on your feet. And I will always be thankful. And this is how you show it? By stealing our clients? We didn't steal anything. These were clients. You have a fiduciary responsibility to this firm, and you were going behind our backs. I didn't go behind any backs. You I negotiated did. Diane's exit package. You asked and me. And the to... whole time you knew you were leaving. Nothing. I was doing impacted that negotiation. Oh, God. God, you're awful. And you don't even know how awful you are. This is how you and Diane started this firm. Don't burn. you dare compare. Okay. Okay. First of all, you're fired. Second, I'm taking this company's cell phone until such Excuse time as Excuse me. That's my personal... And I'm taking it into possession until I can determine which clients you've attempted to steal. You can't do that. Get out of here, Alicia. Right now. You're fired. No. You don't want to push this. I'm a partner. You want to remove me? You need the majority vote of the executive board, and then you need a vote of the full board. I need you to stand right here. She tries to contact anyone, document it, and contact me immediately. Do you understand? I do. This is Will Gardner on the 28th floor. I need four security guards up here right now. Whoa. <laughs> well, the kinetic sequence continues for a good 10 minutes until the opening credits. Alicia is fired alongside all fourth year associates, and the rest of the episode is a frantic pursuit of clients. This is actually not an understatement to say that this particular episode hitting the fan and this scene has been something the fans have been waiting for years. This is truly the climax of a storyline that's been building slowly over the months, over the years, kind of like a house of cards ready to drop at a moment's notice. And I've been on the record praising The Good Wife, not just only because it's a good show, but specifically because of its fifth season and this very episode. The very concept of the show on which the series had been built, the story, the format, for four different years was swiftly upended in a matter of 40 minutes. And this scene sets in motion season five, which in my mind is one of the greatest seasons of TV ever. It's interesting, Alex sat me down and made me watch the first 10 minutes of the episode to get the kind of more context on this. And I have never seen a single episode of The Good Wife in my life. But right after that, I wanted to keep watching the rest of it. I wanted to know, I'm probably going to go home and try to find it on a streaming service <laughs> and see what happens. And in a weird way, it almost felt to me like it could have been the start of a movie that was then going to follow the events of the sequence or whatever. Like you could have come into this and just understood all of these character relationships and dynamics just from what was already in there without having to see anything else and then been invested in the action and what was going to happen to these people and what was going to happen next. And that's why I feel like this scene and this whole sequence, because I feel like you can't really talk about this one scene in a vacuum. You really have to talk about the whole sequence, opening sequence of the first 10, 15 minutes. And 
it works on so many levels. On a first level, on a purely dramatic level, it's compelling. You want to see the trauma. You want to see the action. You want to see people getting fired. What's going to happen next? But it also catapults the payoff to a whole other level for someone who's been a fan of the series over the years. Now, on an exposition standpoint, I think you do get enough information that the scene is compelling on its own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that I, I fully understood what was going on there and even the different relationships of the characters without having seen a single episode. And I would also add that by having seen the show and followed these characters' journeys over the years, you can truly see but also feel the heartbreak of every character involved. There's no good or bad guy this episode. They're just people, and these are the consequences of their actions. This scene between Will and Alicia feeds off the tension of what has been built up to that point. And I did want to talk about the dynamic of the scene in, in the similar way that the Ben Linus scene was in monologue. This is a dialogue and there's a common saying that with every scene, one character doesn't want to be there. And I feel like this is not only true in this scene, but it also changes as the scene progresses. And that's part of the acting, part of it is directing, part of it is the writing. But if we just go through the beats of the scene, you have, first of all, the tension that starts to build as soon as Will enters Alicia's office. Will knows that Alicia is leaving. Alicia doesn't know that he knows. Then she realizes that. Then we wait for his reaction. She justifies her actions. He trashes a desk. She explains her reasoning. He threatens her. She compares herself to him and Diane, he fires her, and that's when the dynamic switches where she's the one calling him out on that idea and reveals that she cannot be fired until he gets approval from the board. And then Will leaves the scene, heading out to get that approval, telling Robin to watch over Alicia, not realizing as a side note that Robin is actually in league with Alicia. Yeah, in a good scene like that, those power dynamics should shift and it should seesaw back and forth from one to the other so that it is interesting and kinetic. Absolutely. And then those few minutes, you do have those little nuances that interplay between those characters and that harken back to the relationship between Will and Alicia. And if you have seen The Good Wife, then you know how important the bond between Will and Alicia is. They are the two leads and their forbidden romance has fueled many fan fictions online. Uh, I'm sure Nick has written one even though he hasn't seen the show. Uh, <laughs> and yet we've come to this moment where bridges are being burned for good. Look at Will's side. I mean, you can hear it in his words. You were poisoned. You're awful and you don't even know how awful you are. You can see it in his action. He destroys her desk. You can see it in his expression. He looks like he's about to throw up, but he's trying to maintain his composure. And meanwhile, Alicia is the one standing strong against this deluge of anger. You know, at first it seems that she's backed into a corner quite literally, but she doubles down. Will tells her she's fired, but she calls him out on that idea. She isn't fired until the board votes on it. Lines are being drawn and Alicia's career at Lockhart Gardner may be over, but it catapults us forward to the next beat. It's interesting. Obviously, I don't have any context of the backstory for these characters, but Will kind of seems to me like he is the a character that is usually quite calm and composed, and he is that kind of guy that operates like that. And just from watching this first 10 minutes, they literally stop by foreshadowing. He has a, a publicist in his office with him, and she's like, you're stable. That's what I love about this place. We go with the idea that this whole place is stable and reliable, and everyone knows that. And then they're, they're going to upend everything. And his character you know, feels to me like the kind of person who would usually take things in his stride and whatever, and this is the one moment that he finally breaks. There's definitely the straw that breaks the camel's back with Will. But it's interesting because he's always been seen as this peaceful character, right? You guessed it correctly on that level, but he's also this passionate guy who believes in the law and believes in all those ideals, and that's what he wants to fight for. 
And there's been an inversion of the characters where Will is a bit like Alicia and Diane is a bit like Carrie, uh, this other character. And you do see that being built up and revealed in that whole sequence. Now, The Good Wife is also a show that knows how to direct and kind of do great camera work. The, the first 15 minutes almost feels like one continuous shot since it is an entire narrative sequence that goes from one moment to the next and the one after that without skipping a beat. But in fact, it's multiple scenes that were etched together on the writing standpoint. And The Good Wife is notorious for its long teasers, which are bona fide first acts, and this is no exception. The whole first act or teaser runs about 15 minutes, I believe, from start to finish. And that's a great example of propelling story forward while maintaining momentum. So what can writers learn from this sequence in The Good Wife? Well, first of all, pay things off. This is one of the most cathartic, frenetic scenes of the show's history because it has built that house of cards about to crumble at the drop of a hat. Thank you for my mixed metaphors. <laughs> and don't be afraid to let the moments between the moments happen. A lot of the scene and reactions are internalized by the characters. So, for example, Alicia says she wanted to try something new. And you can see the moment where she pauses in the middle of that sentence realizing she's about to say that cliche and she still says it. And then an enraged Will propels himself and trashes her desk. So every little moment in that sequence builds on the one before it, which brings me to my last point, which is play with power dynamic within the scene. You can start a scene where one character is in position of force, but be confident in using the interplay to flip that notion upside down by the end of it. Will is the one confronting Alicia, backing her into a corner, firing her for what she did. And by the end of the scene, he seems to be running tail between his legs, which moves us to the next beat of him assembling the board to fire Leisha and so forth. So build your own momentum. And that brings us to the end of our episode. So thank you for taking the time to tune in and listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 77. And in a few weeks, you'll be able to get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 77 transcript. We would love for you to leave us some reviews. And you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All those reviews are going to help more people find the podcast and tune in. And you'll have lots of friends you can listen with. And thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. Paperteam listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. You can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, favorite scenes you'd like us to analyze, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we're taking a break for President's Day, but we will be back February 26th with... A friend of ours, Jonah Shaw, who is an actor on the series Halt and Catch Fire. I believe she had a role in the latest Spider-Man movie, as well as many other things. And she's going to give us an actor's perspective on TV writing. It's going to be very interesting, and we'll see you in two weeks. See you then.